this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the words of Pulitzer Prize-winning author and novelist Annie Dillard, what in the Sam Hill, H-I-L-L, what in the Sam Hill is going on? That's her question to the presence of evil in our world. Why is it here? What's going on? And for some of us in the room, that, that question's philosophical, and your mind jumps to like good, compelling, intellectual reasons to explain the presence of evil in this world. For others of us, I'd probably say most of us in this room, that, that question's a deeply personal question. We've experienced our own trauma, and the question of evil and what God, if there is a God, will do with it is not a hypothetical question to debate over a bold cup of coffee, it's, it's a deeply personal question, and the stakes are high. That really, you could say, Annie Dillard's question, what is going on here, is a question that's at the heart of Revelation. The trauma and evil and suffering typically do one of two things to us. For some of us, it's, it's a breaking experience. That when evil is inflicted on us or we experience, the world no longer is a safe place. It's no longer a fair place. It's no longer right. And that begins to shape our entire outlook on existence. And there's no going back from that. And for some, they don't come back from that despair. The trauma and evil they experience shape and become the most foundational truth to their existence. For others, the experience of evil or trauma and the breaking that comes from it actually opens up the world to a new vision, it creates in us an unbroken quality where we, if we can live life in the face of this, there's nothing we can't live through. And Revelation deals with evil in that sort of way. It says, listen, if you begin to take the outlook on evil that Revelation hands to us, you get a new vision for life. Right? If you, if you embrace what Revelation has to say about evil and suffering, it means you can live life in a way where there's no turning back and you can, you can in, embrace or experience this life with a fresh, unbreakable vision to you. But here's the thing. This is not an easy teaching. Right? It's like we all like, oh, that sounds good. I want that. Uh, until, I, until we actually read what it is. <laughs> and it is, it is a hard uh, cup of bold coffee. Or if, if, you're, if you would permit me this metaphor, it's sort of like if the first beer you ever drank was a Guinness instead of a summer shandy. Like it is, it is a dark, bold teaching. And so I want to I look at, we're actually going to look at three chapters, basically two and a half chapters of Revelation today. And I want to do it under three headings, which is, uh, one, the problem of God's power and evil. Two, the promise to God's people to overcome evil. And three, the power of God's silence in the face of evil. This is in three chapters, deeply complex, but good news, we have alliteration, we have three Ps, we have the problem, the promise, and the power. Um, and so I want to start with the problem of God's power and evil. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, he begins uh, the book in his intro with this, this provocative statement. He writes, Sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, pain, and loss. And when this comparison is done, 
it's often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. So Keller says that, that when it comes to dealing with evil, with suffering, with grief, our own cultural uh, location, we are the best at being the worst. We really struggle to deal with grief and suffering. And what he goes on, one, he goes on to make the case. He shows the work that anthrop- anthropologists and sociologists have done to show this is true of us. But the primary reason he says that's true for you and me is, is, is our own culture says that like, the, the reason for existence for us is, is pursuing your own individual desire. It's the pursuit of pleasure. And we hear that, like, follow your own hearts, right? Do, you do you. Uh, we are all our own highest authorities, which means that, that if, if life is about pursuing pleasure, anything, any idea, any event, any piece of suffering or evil that we do not like, we do everything we can to avoid it, to ignore it, or to remove it. That for us, suffering, discomfort, and evil can only be an interruption to the meaning in life. Because if meaning in life is the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of my own desires, no one would ever choose evil, suffering, trauma, which means those things can only be an interruption to meaning in life. They can never be a path to meaning in life. And so when you look at our own response to death, evil, suffering, compared to people who lived 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, we have much more fear, we have much more anxiety, we're terrified. Because the only response to evil and suffering that our culture gives us is, is crippling fear, because this is going to ruin your life and there's no way around it, or drastic avoidance. I just want my life to go back to normal. The number of times I've heard that in the last six months, I just want things to go back to normal, is a sign of how our culture deals with interruption, with suffering, with loss. I just want, I just want it to go away. Revelation 6-8 gives us a very different vision of, of evil. But to set up where Revelation 6 is, we have to walk, walk ourselves back through the first five chapters. And if you remember, Revelation 1 begins by, by us saying, this is a book revealing who Jesus Christ is to us. And one of the, the things that's real, uh, revealed about Jesus to us is that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the first and the last, which means he's in control of history. And then you move into Revelation 2 through 3, and Jesus is speaking to his church, and what he's warning them is, listen, you're going to suffer. If you are faithful to me, you're going to suffer, which should immediately raise the question around all of us, which is that if Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, first, how did the ruler of the kings on earth get killed by the rulers of the kings on earth, end up on a cross? And secondly, if, if Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, why is his people going to suffer? Like, if Jesus is in charge, why would he look at his church and say, listen, be faithful to me and you're going you're gonna to suffer for it? Like, that, those two things feel like contradictory things. Then we move into Revelation 4 and 5, and we get this vision of Jesus. The reason why he's willing to open the seals, which is essentially a metaphor for beginning this, the end times, beginning the end of the world, God's salvation breaking finally and fully into the world. The reason Jesus is alone is worthy to do it is because he is the lion who is also the lamb. He's the one who suffered and died. The ruler of the kings on earth was slain by the, ruler of the king, by the rulers of the kings on earth. And he, that is what makes him worthy to usher in salvation for us. So that, those are the first five chapters. And then Revelation 6, Jesus begins to open the seals, which, as I mentioned, is a metaphor for beginning God's end-time salvation plan for, for the world. And so Revelation 6 through 8 is the opening of the seven seals. 
And, and this is where basically revelation begins to break into different directions and it becomes very complex and to understand what's, what's happening here. And so I want to just ask really quickly, okay, let's do, the, do a little bit of work. What are the seals and when are the seals? Right? What are these and when are they going to happen? And I'll start with the when question. I'm just going to say, listen, if, you want, if you're really interested in that question, you need to come Wednesday night because I'm just going to disappoint you in the next few minutes. Because I'm not going to really tell you because uh, it's very complex. But essentially, Christians have answered when revel- these seven seals happen in three ways. First is that these are referring to events in the first century. And when those four horsemen came out, that, that all happened um, in the first century A.D. That was kind of the church's position early in Christian history. The second way of, of reading that is that the, the seals one through five in particular are the entirety of existence from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to his final coming. Then seal six is actually the final judgment. Um, seal six and seven then are, are the final judgment. But it's sort of a, there aren't actually, there's going to be actually one moment when a horseman comes out um, and it happens in this like short amount of time. That's a metaphor for uh, the, the entirety of history from Jesus' first coming till his second coming. And then thirdly, as people who are saying this, this is going to happen in the future, and there's going to be a moment when Jesus begins to open scrolls, and when he opens it, the first, the horseman's going to come out, and there's going to be a famine throughout the world. And the second horse, you know, and, and it, that's going to be a time in the future. And good Christians have disagreed on that. And listen, if you're like, I really want to know, well, that's Wednesday night. Um, that's when we're going to do that. Um, but, but here's what, what matters uh, for us this morning, because I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. The seals one through four are the four horsemen, and evil and suffering are, are introduced into the world. Seal five is Christians praying for their vindication because they've suffered at the hands of the seals that have been opened. Seal six, I think, is the final judgment, the depiction of the final judgment of Christ returning once and for all, and seal seven we'll get to in a second. So the first four seals describe four horsemen, and they're let loose on the world. And what's let loose on the world is war, famine, destruction, and death. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is Jesus is the one opening these seals. And I'm going to say this. like this is Theologians have found ways to obscure what's happening. What Jesus, Jesus is opening the forces of evil loose onto the world. That's what's happening. And we can, we can explain it away, we can you know, paint a rose on that picture, but that, what's happening is Jesus is opening the door for evil to be let loose on the world. But it gets even worse than that. Because what's clear, I think, in the first four seals is the primary people who suffer the, what's let loose on the world, the four horsemen, is the church, is God's own people. And I think that's clear for a couple of reasons. Verse 4 in chapter 6 we read that the second horseman was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. The word slay there is only used in reference to Christians being killed for their faith throughout Revelation. And how G.K. Beale describes the four horsemen is that they are Satan's attempt to conquer the saints through suffering so that they will lose their faith. The four horsemen is Satan's attempt to conquer the saints through suffering so that they will lose their faith. And that's why we read then in the fifth seal, it makes sense of the fifth seal, where it's Christians who have died, who are suffering, and they ask for justice from God. O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge 
our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So my own reading of these verses, I'm, I'm sort of in position two with a lot of interest in position three, which is I, I think we're living in the four horsemen time where there's, there's periods and cycles of kingdoms rising and falling, of destruction and death and war and famine. And while there may be a yet uh, final fulfillment of these four horsemen that comes in the future, which would be the third position, I, I'm entirely open to that. The reality is you read these verses and it's like, well, that's what we're living in. We're experiencing that all over the world. <clears throat> and I think that's, that gives explanatory power for you and I then are how to live um, in faith in Jesus in this time. But again, if you're like, I want more on that Wednesday night, 7 p.m. in this room. But what I want to do, I want to dwell more on just how brutal this teaching is. Which is Jesus is saying, either at some distant point in the future or right now, what's going to happen with my church is forces of evil are going to be let loose on it. And Christians are going to suffer and some will die. All because of things Jesus doesn't just permit, but in some ways opens the door to let loose on the world as he opens the seal. That's a really hard teaching. So think of it like this. Uh, when I was a kid, I only drank three liquids. Uh, water, apple juice, and milk. Because if you've ever drank water, apple juice, or milk, you're, why would you need a fourth liquid? Like those three things are pretty, pretty good. Um, but what happened was my, uh, as a kid, when I was a kid, my dad took me to a, a football game uh, between Notre Dame and Indiana. And at that time, uh, Notre Dame Stadium didn't have water anywhere to drink. They didn't sell milk or apple juice, which meant I was, it was really hot. I was getting really thirsty. But there was no water fountains, nothing to drink. Um, so my dad goes off to get a drink, and, and he brings it back, and I was like, oh, you found some water. He's like, yeah, I found some water. So I, I begin drinking from this, this giant cup uh, very quickly, and then as I finish drinking, my, my mouth is on fire, right? It's just, I've drank fire. Like, I've never experienced this before, because it was, it, was, uh, it was sliced. It was the Sprite, the Pepsi Sprite of the day. It was sliced, which looked like water, even when I opened it up check, but it was not water, it was sliced. Now listen, then at that point, I had discovered a fourth liquid that was worth drinking um, at that point. But the initial burn of drinking that soda was unlike anything I'd experienced. And I just want to say, like, drinking of what Revelation 6 is saying is like that, which is why a lot of Christians try to remove the fire. They try to tamp down what's being said here. They try to avoid what's being said here, which is Jesus opens the forces of evil onto his own church. Just period. Like, you can't get around that. Like it does, you can't say that God didn't know the future and it was an accident or that, you know, Jesus kind of permitted in the past that we just, well, it's happening down there. I'm not, I got nothing to do. No, it's, there's too much sovereignty of Jesus involved here. This is a really tough teaching. But there's three things from it I want us, I want us to lean into, which I think is helpful as we process our own suffering, our own evil, our own trauma. First is the evil is named. It is not avoided, it's not ignored, it's not brushed away. And it all culminates to the prayers of the saints. God, how long are you going to do this? Why won't you stop it? And there's a tendency, uh, is in, uh, or I should say, there's no tendency here in Revelation, as there is in Western secular culture, of ignoring death, of ignoring the evil or suffering. It's addressed and God is called to account for what he's doing. Right? Like, don't read this prayer as like a nice little, uh, you know, Sunday school prayer of like, oh, Jesus, how long will you, will you be killing your own people? Right? With a, a, no, this is like, like this, there's probably tears behind this prayer. There's, there's passion. There's anger. 
Right? God is not fair. So evil is named first. Secondly, evil is contained. Jesus is in total control. He commands the horsemen, they listen to him. And despite the deep reality of evil in the world, it is not in charge. It is contained, it is measured, it's controlled. But of course that's the problem, is evil is not stopped. Right? It's named, it's contained, but it is not stopped. And, and just even to pause for a moment, what John sees here. He sees underneath the altar the souls of those that have been slain. Which if you know Christian history, most of Christianity views, or Christian history has viewed the author of Revelation as John the Apostle. And also the first martyr for Jesus was his brother James. Which means, I don't think it's a stretch to say that maybe John saw his own brother under the altar, slain, right? That's, one, that's a part of the vision he's looking at, of, of his own traumatic experience, of seeing his brother killed for the, face, for the faith of Jesus. That Jesus has the power to stop evil, but he doesn't. By opening the seals, Jesus does not hold back the forces of evil on this world or against his church. And that's, that is a hard teaching swallow, which is why so many Christians try to, to water it down in ways that avoid the implications of the problem of the power of God and evil. If God is, is all-powerful, how is there evil? What is going on here? And so Jesus is, is not holding back the forces of evil on his own church. That's point, that's point one, right? That's where the, the Revelation 6 starts. And that leads us then to point two, which is the promise to God's people to overcome evil. So we're sitting in all this tension. Let's see. Revelation 7 begins to address that tension. Now, as I've wrestled through my own experience of suffering, my own encounter with evil and trauma in my own life, one of the most questions I've, one of the questions I've meditated most on is, is what, what, what is it about evil that's so painful? Because I think for, listen, if we're to give that answer in our own Western secular culture, it's, well, I want pleasure and evil takes it from me. So the, the real problem is pleasure has been taken from me. But I, I think if you really meditate on the presence of evil, that's actually not why we fear it so much or what's so damaging about it to us. Because ultimately, we'd all say, listen, experiencing really hard things is how we grow as human beings. So I don't think the reason why we look at evil and we think it's so awful is because it takes pleasure from us. I think there's something more, there's something underneath that. And as I've meditated on it, there's two things I've named about evil and suffering that I think ultimately what makes it so terrifying to me. First, I think this is true for all of us. I think we're all afraid of two things. That first, I'm afraid I will be abandoned. That when I encounter evil, I'm encountering the final word to the universe. That everything that overwhelms and is inescapable that's wrong about this world is the last word. And that's what Revelation 7 is, is dealing with. So Revelation 6, it's the first six seals, which is, as I mentioned, the first four, the four horsemen. The fifth seal is the, the saints praying for justice and vindication. Seal 6 is uh, the final judgment. And then what Revelation 7 does is it sort of hits the rewind button and takes us back before the first seal is opened. We haven't gotten to the seventh seal yet, but the re rewind button is hidden is hit and it's taken back. And we get more of the picture of what's happening before the four horsemen is released, released onto the earth, right? So all the tension that I, I've tried to walk us through, which is 
is how does God like allow this evil into our lives, right? This, this feels brutal. We're all wrestling through that through Revelation 6. And then it's like Revelation 7. It's like God knows that. So it's like, okay, hold on. There's some other things going on that you don't know about yet. And I want to tell you what they are. And that's Revelation 7. And here's what we read. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This is most likely a reference again to the four horsemen. So this is, this is the rewind button. This is before the four horsemen are let loose. Holding back the four winds of the earth. So the four horsemen have not been released yet. That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given great power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God and they're on their foreheads. So as we get the rewind button, and what, what, what is said from the throne, from heaven, is before the four horsemen go out, first what must happen is that the, the servants of God must be sealed on their foreheads. Um, and then we get the 144,000 witnesses and all that. And there's, listen, again, there's lots of debate about how Christians are to understand this. But here's what I think is, here's what I think is happening. The 144,000 witnesses is a metaphor for all Christians throughout history. Um, it's not literally 144,000 people at one point, but it, and that's why you get perfect numbers of, of 12,000 of each tribe of Israel, which is a totality of the people of God, right? All of the people of God experience this sealing on their forehead. God seals us. So what does that mean? And listen, what's, what's clear is it is not a protection against anything evil that might happen to us. Remember seal five. Christians will suffer, some will die. They're underneath the altar crying out for justice. So whatever sealing means, it's not a promise of physical protection in this life. So what does it mean that we've been sealed? And I think the answer is we have protection spiritually as we experience evil. In other words, why am, why am I so afraid of evil? I'm so afraid of evil because it's the final word on my existence. And I will, I will be alone as I experience it. And what the ceiling does is say, you are not alone. You are protected spiritually as you encounter the evil of this world. We are sealed with the name of God on our forehead. Now, in the moments of most, of most intense suffering in my life, the people I've wanted to be around the least are the explainers. The people who will let me know that the evil that I'm experiencing, it has a good reason. And they might even know it, right? They've actually unlocked the, the reality of the universe. And they can tell me the meaning of my suffering in real time. And those people, you just nod your head at them. You pray to God. It's a short conversation. And you move on. Because it's not helpful. But that's not what Jesus does in his, his response to suffering and evil in the church. In other words, Revelation 6 is just a brutal chapter. But Jesus doesn't go, okay, but listen, here, here's why it's all worth it. Right, I'm going to do this, and you're going to get this, and you know what he says is, no, I've sealed you. You're mine. No explanation, no justification, just this is going to be bad, but my name is on your forehead. You're sealed. I'm with you in this. I'm not leaving. I'm here for you, period. And in the moments of my own suffering, the people who have said, I'm with you, I'm here for you, those are the people you want to be around, and that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. And if we know, if we have a rock-solid conviction in our lives that we will not experience evil, suffering, or trauma alone, we can endure it. And that's what the ceiling promises 
us is that, that we will not be harmed spiritually through the four horsemen, through suffering, through evil. If you are in Christ, you've been sealed and you will be protected until the final judgment. It's the good news of Revelation 7. So that's first. And then second, the second fear I have when it comes to evil, suffering, trauma in my own life, again, it's not that pleasure has been taken from me. It's that I'm, I'm either afraid evil has the final word, I'll be alone. Or secondly, there's, there's no one to make right what's been wrong in the end. <clears throat> and that's why we've titled this, this series, um, Everything's Sad Untrue. Because my own reading of Revelation is God is, very, is using very intentional language of, of speaking how he's going to unwind and undo the evil, trauma, suffering we experience in this life. <clears throat> and we see that in Revelation 7. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And here's why I see this not just as some future moment, because this actually gives explanatory power to what happened in Rome in the first century and what has happened in our world over the last 2,000 years, which is despite persecution, despite opposition to the church, the church has become the only truly global, multi-ethnic, multi-class people of all tribes, peoples, and languages who gather on Sunday mornings and worship before the Lamb. This has already happened to some extent in a foretaste of what is to come, the final revelation of Jesus Christ, of people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping the Lamb. But it's not just a community that's created. It's then our own individual suffering is addressed next in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Right? You're not alone. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living waters. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. But the Christian teaching on evil and suffering is a really hard one. God could, could not allow any suffering, trauma, evil into your life. He has the power to stop it. And he doesn't. But he promises his presence in it, and he promises us to himself, one day, personally and pastorally, undo all of those things in your life. To himself be your shepherd, who wipes your tears from your eyes. And the question to that is obviously, well, why not do it now? Right? What are we waiting for? 
And Revelation doesn't answer that question because there's not, a, there's not an answer to that question. The answer to that question is, is he sealed you for that day. That day is coming. He's, he's protecting you for that day. And secondly, he is going to personally and pastorally, as your own shepherd, heal all of your trauma, suffering, brokenness. So that's seals one through six. Now we're ready for seal seven and point three, which is the power of God's silence in the face of evil. So there's been a little bit of addressing, okay, here's the evil and suffering you're experiencing. But I think the seventh seal opening may be the most powerful moment in the book. Chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now I thought like, what if in this service, I read that verse and I said, we're just gonna be quiet together for 30 minutes. The awkwardness that that would, that would bring into the room. But that's what happens in heaven. 30 minutes of silence. And the question is why? Why silence? There's, probably t- there's two reasons for that. One, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, silence always precedes God's judgment. Right? It's the calm before the storm. God is about to pronounce his final and definitive word on evil in the universe. And so there's silence. But secondly, and I think more powerfully, The silence is because God is listening to and receiving our prayers. Verse 3. Another angel came, so there's silence for 30 minutes. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of of the angel, and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there's 30 minutes of silence for God to hear the prayers of his church, which goes back to seal five, right? God's church praying, vindicate us from the evil we're experiencing, respond to it, do something, God. So God's given 30 minutes of silence to gather in all those prayers. To, to, uh, to take in all that's been prayed. And then what he does is he hurls all of those prayers back to earth. Right? The, sin, the incense, the prayers, they rise up to God. He takes them all up and then he throws them back to earth. And I love the way Eugene Peterson describes this. The prayers which had ascended, unremarked by the journalists of the day, returned with immense force, in George Herbert's phrase, as reversed thunder. Prayer recenters history with incalculable effects. Our earth is daily shaken by it. So what does the church do with evil? The massive power engines of injustice and suffering around us, a world that seems to be falling apart. What does the church do with evil? We spend endless hours meditating on the news and our social media feeds to drive up our anxiety. We dwell in and defend what our own political leaders have to say about the world around us. No. We preach at other people to tell them what to think because if only we were given the power, we could solve the problems of injustice. No. Christians see the evil in this world and we pray. We pray. We say, God, do something. 
And we know because of Revelation 8, one day all of those prayers will be hurled back down to earth when everything sad is made untrue, when everything wrong is made right. And Revelation calls us to pray for two things. First is, Lord, vindicate your saints. In 2017, along with a couple of leaders here, I made, uh, I made two trips to China. And the hope in that time was to develop some relationships with the Chinese church in order to partner with them and help spur the work that's going on in, in China. And so the second trip uh, that I was on, the pastor we were talking to, uh, he took me to tea and just grilled me theologically. Basically to determine, like, are you some weird false teacher from America that we're going to get involved with? And so basically, and one of the, he like grilled me on Revelation in particular, and I passed, uh, apparently. Uh, but the hope was uh, that church in particular, a long term, the, the vision was uh, maybe they could start a seminary out of that church, become a church planting uh, church where they could train pastors and send them out all over to Western China, especially to the number of, of just different nationalities and ethnic groups that, that are in Western China. It's a very diverse part of China. And here's a picture of, of that church. But now it looks unlikely any of that will happen. Uh, they're not allowed to meet in that building anymore. They split into smaller groups throughout their city to, to meet. They expect persecution. Those plans of, of a large seminary in a building, planning multiple churches in, in this very, uh, very direct way, it ha- it's going to have to look different if that's, any of that's going to happen. And listen, in our own Western secular culture, right, all, we're all like, yeah, but God's going to do something else because we're going to explain away the evil of that, right? Like, it's, well, God's got another plan. Let's find what, No, listen, that's just, that's awful. Right? The persecution that the Chinese church is enduring is wrong, it's evil. And our first response should be to say to God, what are you doing? Your people are being arrested for the work you've called them to do. Make it stop, put an end to this, vindicate your saints. And I hope later today you'll go to chinapartnership.org. They have a great section on how to pray for the Chinese church. And this month... Uh, they're focusing their prayer initiative around the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. That this is what they're asking. I mean, this is Revelation 6 and 8 prayers to pray for the Chinese church. One, to pray for God to protect his people in China from calamity, natural disaster, and worldly temptation. Two, to pray for God to give his people peace when they confront evil. Pray for God's spiritual protection against the attacks of the evil one. In other words, pray Revelation 8. Lord, vindicate your saints. Pray for the Chinese church. The second prayer Revelation calls us to pray is come, Lord Jesus. We should read Revelation 7 and just long for that to be true. A kingdom of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, every race, worshiping before the Lamb of God. Right, people of every tribe, tongue, and language, language worshiping God before their throne, reconciled together out of their own divisions. Are we praying for that now? The healing of the nations. People who have been traumatized, their tears will one day be wiped away. Are we praying for that now? People who are so poor, they go hungry, they go thirsty, their basic needs are not met. Are we praying, Lord Jesus, come? Our response to evil as Christians is to take it to God, to wait for him to take those prayers and send them crashing back to earth. And listen, I'm not saying pray and do nothing. I'm not saying that. But before you do anything or say anything, all of it should be baked in a lot of prayer. And if you're saying and doing much without prayer, you're out of step with what Revelation, how Revelation calls us to live in the end times. 
Because seal seven, which I think refers both to the end of the world and to some extent what we experience in now, what God does is he takes our prayers and he sends them back to earth answered. Man, that should, that should drive us to think the most powerful thing I could do this week in my own climate, in my own culture, in this own moment, the most powerful thing you or I could do this week is pray. That what in the Sam Hill is going on around here? The Christian response to evil is not to avoid it, it's not to explain it, it's not to justify it. The Christian response to evil is prayer. Where we pray to the Lamb who is slain, where we pray to a God who himself knows experience, trauma, loss, and death itself. Where we pray to a God who is so committed to saving us through our own experience of evil, he died, was buried, and was raised to new life, and then sealed us when we come to him in faith, sealed us with his own name on our foreheads. And we pray to a God whose culminating moment of history will be 30 minutes of silence, where he listens to our prayers, he gathers his response, and then hurls justice because of our prayers back onto the earth. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, what a heavy two, three chapters of the scriptures. And so we just sit both in the, the heaviness of the brokenness of our world and simultaneously in the power of the good news Jesus has promised to bring to us. Help us to sit in that place knowing we sit in it not alone, but sealed with the name of our God on our foreheads. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.